You're listening to the Electronic Media Collective Podcast Network. Yeah, it's a mouthful. For more great shows like the one you're about to enjoy, visit electronicmediacollective.com. And now, our feature presentation. Hey. 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 Podcast hey. Live, live show. What's going on? I'm Randy. Melanie. And I'm Jesse. And tonight we, we're doing something different. I'm super excited and a little bit nervous. We're gonna we've got a guest. We've got a guest here. William Dickstein, author, uh, comic creator. How are you doing, William? Doing great. How are you guys doing? Good. Do you prefer William or Will? Oh, yeah, Will's good. Hey Savannah, what's going on? Hey Paul. Hey, Paul. Sorry, the usuals. <laughs> no previously on Grolix tonight. What's the deal? <laughs> I mean, I it's a holiday them. weekend. They wanted to take it off. I don't I blame them. Yeah, I shouldn't encourage that behavior. <laughs> 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 shouldn't encourage that behavior. Um, All right. You mean so, fans? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's so annoying. Freaking fans. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I love you guys. <laughs> okay, so yeah, the format of this is going to be interesting. Okay, so here's what's going to go. Here's what's going to happen. It's not going to be quite your usual Grolix Nights show because we're going to talk to William. William makes awesome stuff. And then uh, we'll just see how it goes. Might have a discussion depending how long it goes. Maybe we'll hit entertainment news. Uh, maybe we won't. If we do, I do have a couple of interesting stories lined up. William, first off, tell us a little bit about yourself you're a writer do you identify primarily as just like like a novelist kind of a traditional author yeah i I think the author label is the one that i would really stick on myself Uh, i think it's the most accurate i don't draw any of the comics and i don't really make any of the um of the covers for anything either so i'm just the prose okay so let's first let's talk about shows and i did i did try to do some research on you and most of the stuff that comes up is all it's all uh, related to to your books. Although I do want to ask you about a YouTube trailer that had to do with Chosen Ooh, I found yeah. from a few That's years old. ago. I, it, it was that was very it was well made. It was interesting. I, I'll have to ask you about that here shortly. Randy's good yeah. at the research. He often surprises the. Guys. I'm impressed. Yeah, yeah. I'm really impressed. <laughs> deep dives. Wait, it's a Google. It's Google. Um, <laughs> But your Google Foo is uh, your Google Foo is awesome. It's great. Yeah. It's not as good as it used to be. Google changes it changes things. I feel like the search results are real dumbed down these days. Yeah. Anyway, okay. First, I'm sorry. I will occasionally just get derailed by the comments. <laughs> <laughs> we got Eddie in the chats tonight, so uh, Eddie, I'm that'll so happen. Confused. I'm so confused. <laughs> Okay. Um, Kiss from a prose. So he's that's a seal reference. Oh, yeah, You're going to get that. a little crazy, yeah. you know. Oh, goodness. All right. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, William. That's okay. <laughs> uh, by the way, just a, I mean, Eddie, in case you didn't know what you were signing up for, welcome Eddie. to Grow Nights. Eddie's a fun <laughs> machine. I'm, I'm impressed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's, he's, he's on it. <laughs> First off, tell us a little bit about Chosen, because that's that's the big thing. In looking you up and in the information you sent me, you've written, it looks like, several books. Last week, 
you released a comic book. Now, is this the first comic book in the series, or was there another? This previously? is the ninth comic. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so I did light research. Just light <laughs> research. Yeah. Uh, I have uh, I have eight other comic books across two volumes for one character named Grizz, and then I switched to a one shot format because really what I've written are mostly novellas, and um, I think the one shot format in general, just kind of fits the universe better and, and what I'm doing. And so this new one shot that came out last week, like you said, is Chosen Chris, and it is 50 pages. Awesome. Okay, so tell us about the universe, Chosen Universe, because sure. it seems like pretty much all of your published work that I could find is all tied into it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the premise is that we have mapped out a gene we realize destines people for greatness. So you may be a uh, strap in, Will, you're in for a pun unfilled ride cool okay uh so you're destined for greatness you might be uh ceo of a fortune 500 company or you may get superpowers and uh the wording there is very specific and i do it so that i have the ability to give you characters who maybe don't really have any uh discernible superpowers but save somebody's life at the end of their story um and then we go all the way and turn it up to 11 with people who can literally manipulate matter at the you know molecular level yeah it's it's an interesting concept made me think of long shot the x-men long long shot it's like if uh because his mutant power was like luck based or whatever yeah. mm -hmm. it's like it's like that but it could be a superpower you could get lucky and get a superpower you could just be lucky or you could be lucky and be a rock star you could be lucky and yeah, yeah. so well, it's kind of cool well some people's gene are is so strong that you know they're um and the classifications in the universe only operate really on like the government funded superhero side normal people don't really classify themselves. Anyway, so you know, some people, you know, might be a specian where they're sort of like a saber tooth or a wolverine, uh, but their gene is so strong that they're more animal than person. So they get lucky in that their chosen gene gives them sort of a superpower, but then unlucky because they look like a crab. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You said it to be, uh, it debuted in 2013. What was the first, there's a book. It seemed like episode one came out in 2014. So Amazon, what happened was was episode one received a like an update uh, sometime in 2014, whatever the date is on there. And when you make a hard update like I did, and I and hard update is when you push the update to everyone's Kindle who's downloaded it, uh, which Amazon doesn't do without you like really berating them about it. And so it, it was originally published October 2013, and then I had to sort of push an update to it sometime 2014. So that date's not like super accurate. Gotcha, gotcha. I need to maybe for interviews, like I need to just like cover up the chat section so I don't yeah. derail myself. <laughs> I'm looking at it as well. <laughs> so one thing I was, uh, by the way, chat, keep 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 going, keep it up, fine. You, keep with the puns, great. man. Keep with the puns. If we didn't want this, we wouldn't have done it live. Um, <laughs> exactly. One thing that's really interesting that I noticed on like the Amazon listing for um, chosen Chris mm -hmm. was. It says that the uh, chosen the universe. It's not sequential. It's non sequential. The series of books as a whole. So oh, you can read pretty much whatever order you want. Almost like an anthology type of thing where you just pull one and boom, well, you've got right. Well, my my question for because from what you were saying, it sounded to me like is each book or or you know comic or whatever is it about one character basically like they don't intermingle. So, yes, that is correct. And the longer answer is this. What I did was I put, so we have three separate anthologies of novellas right now. 
outside of the stuff that's for kids. Um, and so, and so the first five tell sort of an overarching story while following five different characters, right? And so what you get is the unique first person perspective of the character in the story. All the characters are unreliable narrators. So you get overarching stories that the characters sort of help tell to you. And then you also get meta stories, whereas the reader, as you read everything across the universe and you see characters that were also in that scene, but, but the previous character who talked about it didn't know about that character being there, you get more details, right? So you also get meta stories in that way where you as the reader get to figure out what the objective truth really is about a lot of stuff that happens. Right. So when it comes down to reading them in any order, if you want to read them in the in the order that, that I release them in, that's totally fine. Um, if you want to jump around, because one of the anthologies is origin stories of the characters that appeared in the first five but weren't the main character in any story. As an example, episode one follows Frank. He's a 20-something piece delivery boy. His mom is the world's most renowned supervillain, right? So her origin story is the first origin story in the origins anthology, Megatech. Uh, you can read episode one, go right to Megatech, not lose anything across either of them. You can read Megatech first if you want, and then go to episode one and still not lose anything. They tell completely different stories, but they are loosely related. Mm -hmm. And then, so yeah, you can literally follow characters if you want. Chris is a really great example because if you start with her comic, when you get to the end, you get to read her original origin story, which I put in a newsletter that I used to run like five years ago. And, right, okay. and then you're right. And then at the end of that, I, I show you which novellas that she's also in. And so you mm -hmm. can just follow Chris if you want. You can read the comic and then you can jump to episode three and she's in there and you can jump to Jane and she's in there. Right. So you can, mm -hmm. you can really do this any way that you want to. Okay. Is this, so are, is this something that you had mapped that you've had mapped out or, or just that you slowly start adding more to? It would make me sound really cool if I was like, yeah, I always had this super great overarching vision, but I didn't. Yeah, one of the conspiracy rooms with the threads everywhere. You know, they showed they showed like the little cards that J.K. Rowling did when she was like designing Harry Potter and that universe and stuff. And I'm completely the opposite. I am solidly in the middle of someone who plans out what I'm going to write and then writes by the seat of my pants kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so when it, when it came to world building, I was like world building a novella at a time. And somewhere around the end of the origins anthology when i when i wanted to actually sit down and do novellas that just outlined some of the factions i realized like oh wow i i sort of accidentally made a legitimately dystopian setting and it was cuz i just kept asking myself these questions that sounded cool and every time i answered it i was like well it only really makes sense if it happens this way and then you get a world government and you get you know Mm -hmm. just totalitarianism and it's just like disgusting and i don't i don't know it just happened interesting <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, you've got a world where genetic extremists actually trademark the name genetic extremist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we were talking about that a little bit before we brought you on. Um, one, okay. So what we're talking about is in, in in his recent comic that just released. One thing that amused me, and it's it's it felt like very much kind of a throwback to not a throwback, but it's very much a comic book thing to do. Mm -hmm. to where characters are talking about these other tech characters and um one character refers to them as extremists and another character is like extremists <laughs> and the and the other chick's like yeah genetic extremists and it's in a special <laughs> font it's got the trademark logo and yeah, i'm like yes. yeah such a comic book thing to do it's such a dc marvel thing to do yeah so it felt like a, a fun throwback but also like is that trademark for real oh, <laughs> oh yeah. 
<laughs> so it is purely the meta. It is purely the meta joke. I love yeah. that more. That's so good. I I do, I do it a couple times. And the biggest one that's been called out uh, since the book came out was um, the spinach can on the back of her neck. That that, that tattoo, right? Uh, just for everyone listening, the book is about a girl with magical tattoos. When she touches the tattoo on her body, she gets some kind of magical superpower, right? And so uh, she's got a spinach can on the back of her neck. When you touch it, she goes all Popeye and she gets like super muscular. And so that was like a real throwback, but everyone yeah. really liked it, which is cool. That got my, the, I think that got an actual laugh out of me, <laughs> which is given, and no spoilers, so I'm not going to talk about what happens in it, but like given where the story goes immediately after, I was like, that's it's man. You make them laugh and then, then you step on them. <laughs> um, <laughs> but he's like, touch the spinach can on the neck, on my neck. And I, I don't know if I'd noticed if the can was there in the art previously, but I hadn't noticed it. And you know, you know, I hear, I hear it. Popeye song going. Yeah. <clears throat> I appreciate um, you saying that, uh, you know, oh. it was, a, it was a laughter moment followed by a sad moment. I think that that's the, only thing I really get prideful about is the ability to make people feel stuff while we're to talking manipulate about manipulate people. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, as a storyteller though, like that's like, if you can actually, I mean, yeah, if you bum people out or you make them laugh, you know, you're getting a genuine reaction from somebody. Yeah. So yeah, I get it. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. <laughs> I had to like poke, poke my poke fun, make my joke and then immediately backpedal. So yeah. Um, <laughs> you mentioned children's books. And that was something in the info that you'd sent over to me that I found interesting. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because what the comic we read, I, I wouldn't say it's like, it's definitely not like a hard R or anything like that. It was, right. um, I'd say kind of, there's some violence, but I'd say kind of not tame, but it's, it's definitely like mature. PG-13. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you can see that. Yeah. But you also have meant you also mentioned children's books, so right. How does that so, fit in? Yeah, the PG thirteen rating. Um, if we go all the way back to when you know I first started doing comic cons and stuff, when you have to sell something in person, um, you know you kind of you kind of gravitate to stuff like that. Uh, you know, par parents walk up with their kids and they're like, "Can I give this to my kid?" And so the PG thirteen thing was so accurate because I used to say that, mm -hmm. and. Um, around the time that I first started dating my now wife, uh, I was also, you know, I do a couple shows here locally and uh, one that I really love to do, which was canceled, obviously, um, coming up anyway, is the, uh, downtown book festival that we have here in Las Vegas. And I love it because it's local and it just really feels like one of those shows that gets you sort of enmeshed in the like local consciousness here. Every year that I go back, you know, there's more and more people at that show, even more than the local Comic-Con that I do where there's people recognize me kind of thing. And it's probably because it's like a free event. And so people who go to it with their kids, they go every year. But the big part of it is that there's a lot of kids. It's not primarily a kid event at all, but the kids section, like we're all outside and the kids section's like inside. It's prestigious. Like if you have kids stuff, you want to be inside. That's where everyone goes. <laughs> so the first year that my wife came with me, she was like, man, you got to write some stuff for kids. Like there's, you know, it was like every third person who walked up to the table, they had kids with them. And I, and if they're yeah, younger than like 13, which they all were, I didn't really have anything for them. So she gave me a little nudge and I just kind of mapped out the same, the same sort of, you know, I wanted to do some novellas for kids and they're not really novellas. They end up kind of just being children's chapter books. So I have one out right now that is about, you know, the theme is that your body changes and it's okay, but it's, 
it follows a little boy who has an elephant trunk for a nose and he wakes up one day to realize he's growing tusks. So um, he's got all kinds of other social problems that he deals with. It's a new school. They're making fun of him. He fights robots, which is really fun. And so what I've done after that is I have a second one written and it's ready to go, but we're doing the release thing for the new comic right now. So I'm going to, you know, we're going to do that after we do this kind of thing. And it follows his bully, which is a little rhino boy. And he's like the established character at the school. And so I'm doing something that I did with the Factions Anthology, which went over really well, where I'm following three different characters across the same three days. Mm. Like not even loosely connected events. It's literally the exact same timeline, but you get to see why they were Mm. behaving that way. And so the reason that I'm really enjoying the kids stuff right now is because what we really get to see in this little Rhino Boy story is the way that miscommunication from your parents and the the pressure that they put on you as a child, how it can morph you into being a bully, mm-hmm. right? And so that's that's what his story is about. And, you know, my really the only, um, I only have a couple test readers and the main one is my older brother. And it's because he's like brutally honest, right? Normally that doesn't work for people, but it works for us. And uh, when he read this one, his big comment was like, man, I can't believe you made me sympathize with the literally the the, the villain from the first one who is just like so over the top. But then, you know, I wrote this one in such a way that you kind of realize like, yeah, I can see that happening, I guess, you know? Mm-hmm. So or that, that was the intention. Anyway, so yeah, I do good stuff. That's great. Yeah. And you know what? I always say, if you listen back to our stuff, you always go for kids and kids stuff because it's that's where all the money is. Those little fuckers will buy anything. Not knowing, but and your their parents will just pump some money in it. So yeah. that's a smart move on your part. I I think that you should stick to that. I mean, it's I mean, do it all, of course, but you'll make a lot of money if you get into kids stuff. Yeah, thanks. Hmm? I like that you're taking your approach, um, your your kind of interconnected world um, style, and applying it to the kids books too, because then, like, I think the kids will they'll key into that. They'll respect that because it's not like you're talking down to them in any way. Yeah. A lot of times like children's books, people feel like they have to really make the message super simple. No, kids are really smart. Yeah. 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 Hey, Hey Paul and Savannah, if you want to get your kids into some extended universes. No. Okay. (laughs) Right. There's the delay. (laughs) Yeah. There's always, of course there's the delay. And also, I will have now. This isn't super helpful for the live stream listeners right now, but I will have links to William's stuff um, when the podcast episode comes out. So after Monday, if you're listening to this in audio form, uh, check the episode description or go to our website, and we'll have links for you. What other element did I want to ask about? There's a okay. So how about this? Because that that's the question: is the what other element? There are a lot of things going on. It seems like a lot of different elements. And I found, I'm going to keep referring to the comic because I just I just read that. So that's my main uh, frame of reference for, for your work right now. Something I found super interesting is, so obviously the world has this kind of overarching genetic, as you talked about, superhero maybe possibly premise or framing device or something. But then... For example, what we see more in Chosen Chris is these tattoos that grant her powers. And there are other people that covet those tattoos to to an extreme, which were very Mm -hmm. cool characters. I enjoyed. I did like those characters. Thank you. 
cool um, visual too i mean like yeah. right yeah and it seemed like maybe that was kind of connected to the gene thing but also a little bit its own thing mm-hmm. so i guess how do you go about pulling these different elements together i'm not sure how to frame the actual question i I just found it interesting the pulling these different elements together i'm so like slightly bewildered by how this tattoo thing works in the first place because she has a very strange line about or maybe it's maybe it's this maybe it's the guys the extremists that have it about how there's only so much ink to go around correct so I don't know. Do you just want to talk about maybe the tattoo concept, but also just the idea, just how you pull in those different elements? Like you said, when you started, it wasn't necessarily even like a dystopian type world. And then it just slowly kind of came together that way when you added different elements that you wanted to incorporate. Yes. So I'm going to talk in reverse to what you to to the way that you talked about. I feel like I already did. So, yes, that's appropriate. (laughs) Okay. so so let's so let's talk about. the opening page that says, welcome to the world of chosen, where it tells you about who the capes are and uh, genetic extremists and freelancers and stuff like that. So that opening page, which is something conceptually that I stole from the forgotten realms comics, by the way. Mm. Um, Yeah. And okay. So what does it do? It frames the universe for you, but what it also does is it lies to you. What it's actually telling you, is what the majority of people know about this dystopian world that they live in. And the first thing that we know about pretty much every dystopia ever is that information is highly controlled. So what I'm doing out the gate is lying to you as the reader by putting you in the same frame of mind as the narrators, which are all unreliable, right? Mm -hmm. So in reality, there's no hard and fast rule, and I say in reality, but in the reality of the chosen universe, there's no hard and fast rule that really anything is actually linked to the CHO5EN gene. So what's happening, right? What's happening is um, I put the narrators in a box without putting myself, the creator, in a box, right? I'm doing the Brandon Sanderson thing where I'm establishing rules for the magic that's in the universe, Mm -hmm. um, but they're not hard and fast at all. And so I have other works, right? We're still going backwards now to the way that you introduced the topic. Uh, I have other works out that did some stuff with magic. And if we go backwards chronologically, there is a magical dagger that is in the comics, uh, the Grizz comics, excuse me, and also in the Ripsaw novella. And none of the people who interact with the dagger immediately know that it's magical uh, outside of like one scene in the Grizz comic. And then um, before that too, in episode four, there is a magical lantern and it like traps souls and stuff like that. And so so what I've always kind of done is given these little, sometimes overt clues that magic exists in the chosen universe, right? But the issue primarily is that the majority of the narrators so far have not really interacted with it or know anything about it. And a big thing that I did in the novel, the first full-length novel that came out last October, was I really let people know that information is always flowing down from, from on top, from the world government, and it's always being modified. The main character in the novel that came out last October is Ivy, and she is a, like a burgeoning superhero, right? She's finishing up at the academy, and 
as she's getting ready to go out into the world, she has a knack for like really enjoying reading old reports, especially of the senior capes at the academy. And so the guy who runs the academy, his name is Hunter. He's the main character in episode two. He comes to her in one scene in the book and he sees that, he, that she's reading his old reports. And the second he picks it up, he's immediately scanning the page and he realizes that like a ton of stuff is missing. And it's stuff that is immediately relevant to her backstory and her life. And so he's like, he's like, oh, you know what? Give, give me a minute. I'll go get you the actual copy of this. And so that's his like sly way of introducing to the reader through dialogue or whatever exposition that uh, information is always, always, always being controlled and edited. And so even these characters in previous novellas or wherever who have interacted with these magical artifacts or magical items, when they write that report and they send it on up, it's going to get modified. So you know what I mean? So the information is always being controlled. Um, so talking about the magical tattoos. So we'll talk about I, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I did throw a lot into yeah, that. Yeah, boom. Okay. okay, so so I wanted to do a couple things. The first thing I wanted to do was dive into Chris as a character. And I knew I had to do it at a time that was previous to her current status in the novellas and stuff like that. So that's why we're reading this, um, not origin story, but it's just sort of like a prequel to everything that she has going on in any of the novellas or the, or the actual prose. And I wanted to do it because I knew that the concept of having Sort of like these magical tattoos and the ink that is the magical ink that powers the tattoos and stuff like that, I knew it would have to be just a whole subculture. She could not be the only one, right? And because we don't have, you know, the, the materials that go into magical tattoos like they would in, you know, Dungeons and Dragons or something like that, um, and because it was just this magical ink, you know, I knew that if there was a subculture, there would be people who were going to be preying on it. And that's how we kind of got to mm -hmm. uh, the Skinners and stuff like that, people who don't hear the call of the ink, right? The ink is magical. It magically calls to people who, for some reason, are attuned with it. And so they become these, you know, wandering samurai or whatever who go search out this magical ink to get it tattooed on their body. Uh, magical tattoo shops, as you learn in her, as you learn in Jane, I think, ooh, uh, <laughs> they're slowly dwindling away and the, there's almost no ink left and whatever. But because she hears it so clearly, which is really, really rare. She's able to kind of constantly be one of the only people who is finding more and more of it. So her being targeted by Skinners, especially at that point in her life, was like really dangerous because, you know, she's not enmeshed into the aggregate like she is in her as an adult. So I don't know if it's just because I've, yeah. So I'd not, not knowing her larger story, this kind of contained story felt, um, it felt like, you know, it felt like an addiction story, really. I mean, it, it yeah, seemed it maybe maybe not so subtly an addiction story about this kind of a homeless wandering uh, character. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, was that kind of something maybe that inspired this, at least this installment? So sort of yes and no. I think um, I think anytime I'm looking for a motivation for a character that I probably accidentally have a tendency to sort of go towards, you know, addiction or um, stuff like that, you right, know, like right. power hungry or, or whatever. And it's not on purpose, but it does happen. So it is one of only two works that we have in the chosen universe that are driven specifically by addiction. And I felt comfortable letting Chris's story take that sort of form because she's gonna, you know, she has the only comic and then it is, wait for it, 
Capes. That's the one in the uh, Factions anthology. And the main character is, um, I used to call him Meke, but my wife calls him Meek, which works way better. <laughs> and, uh, and he is addicted to being punched in the face. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Yeah, he's addicted to being punched in the face. He has like this static that um, is literally painful. And it's like a way to, you know, um, describe the physical addiction that he has to being punched in the face. And if he goes too long without getting in some kind of physical altercation, he's literally in pain. Yeah. So how many. So watching you kind of and man, three into it and I'd be forgetting which is which, but watching you to kind of like take a second to be like, okay, which story was that? How many, how many books or how many works are out currently in, in your universe here? And how hard is it to keep them straight in your mind? I'll show you how I answer this question. I go, <laughs> I go, there's five in the first one. It's the first anthology. Then there's three in the next one. So that's eight. And then there's another three in the factions anthology, which is 11. And then there is a novel and one chapter book for kids. So technically like 12 short works, one novel, keeping the volumes of the comics together is very easy. There's four in each of those. There's two volumes. So eight comics plus one is nine. So that's everything. Um, keeping it straight. Yeah. It's not like hard mm-hmm. because if I really, if I just take that second, the information is there because I, I made it. And um, sometimes the hard thing is I accidentally remember the first version of something that I wrote. Oh, and right. So, okay. So oh, someone, like a draft. Yeah. Yes. So someone will talk about a scene and they'll be like, man, I really love the way that, you know, XXX happened. And, and then I have to be like, oh, yeah, I changed it to that. That was a good call. You're totally right. You know, I'll remember, <laughs> I'll remember something totally different. Ripsaw is a really good example because I actually went back and deleted like eight or 9,000 words. I, 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 I had gotten it well past the midpoint and then really hated what I was doing. So it deleted a bunch of it. And I, and the stuff I had deleted was like stuff that I had meant to tie into other things. And so people will talk about like one scene and then I'll think like, Oh, but I didn't put that other scene in Ripsaw. It like, uh, it gets weird. It does get weird. You're totally right, but it's not that hard. Also, this might be a good time to talk about the trailer. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, so, okay. So what this is, at least I'm, I'm going to hand it over to you, of course, because you know what this is. But yeah, like I said, I come across uh, a YouTube channel. I, I think there's like three, maybe four videos on there. Um, not too recent, but one of the videos at least um, from like five years, four or five years ago yes. was a trailer for basically for the, for this, for the chosen uh, universe. Mm-hmm. But it's a, a <laughs> legit live action and it looked like nice production value trailer. Um, so, so what's that about? Is that just like a, a promo thing? Okay, here's what happened. <laughs> from the beginning, <laughs> from the beginning of Chosen, I knew I wanted to go expanded universe. I always, that was like the only portion of the vision that was really clear from the very beginning. And it sort of ties into like the five-year plan that I had originally that it, that didn't work out. But what did work out obviously was expanding it into these different formats. So the original comic book, while we're talking about this, was Brass Man. And it's an issue zero that I did with a good friend of mine. And we were never able to really get that going. And that's how I ended up switching over to commissioning things from people. Mm-hmm. So anyway, originally we had episode one. And then in the beginning of episode one, we see Brassman, who uh, is killed right away. 
That's what kicks off episode one. And so the idea was I was going to give Brassman his own comic that was going to lead up to him dying, right? And then I wanted a, I wanted just a video, like a real world video element. And so the idea was, you know, get a trailer made and then see if it gets any interest kind of thing. Or mm-hmm. if it doesn't, even if it doesn't, I would always have sort of this blanket piece of marketing material that I could show to people and maybe just get them to be like, oh, what is this, you know, and want to then go check out my stuff. So here's what happened. I worked with House of Dawn, who are a local production studio. Really great, super, super great. Um, I would recommend them to anyone, literally. And then I got this really great trailer. And then it sort of worked out for me online, but really didn't. And then what really happened was I, you know, I was taking it to these conventions with me. Like I would, I was originally, I wasn't even getting a table. I was getting a booth. And so I had this big booth set up with like all these big, you know, banners and stuff. And then I had on in the middle of my table, I brought a TV and I would just like play the trailer and then like concept art and stuff like that on a big loop that would just loop the whole time. So here's what happened. People would walk up because they saw the trailer and they'd be like, oh, is this a movie? And I'd be like, no, it's books and comics. And then they would leave. So what we ended up with was this really nice looking piece of marketing material that did nothing to actually help, which is really unfortunate. Oh, Um, right. But so here's something that did happen that not a lot of people know. So I'll tell you this really quick story. So I released the trailer and I pushed it everywhere. I did a thunderclap when those were still a thing and it was successful. And I put it all over Reddit and just like everywhere that I could think of at the time, this is six years ago now, I put it. And it actually did get some interest. So I had an actual real, um, like, I don't even know what to call them, movie studio, a real movie studio who have done stuff that people have seen since they talked to me about it. Um, You know, they contacted me and we had a bunch of calls and stuff. And they basically were like, hey, we've got some first look rights with like Universal and we want to bring this concept to them. And like, is that okay? Do you want to work with us? And I mean, I, at the time I'm like 24, I was like, yes, you know, like, yeah, let's do it. I don't care. And, um, it was this like three months drawn out thing where we had all these conversations and then they had their big day to go pitch, you know, whatever ideas and stuff like that. And they didn't want it and it never happened. Uh, but so it was really cool. You know, all that money that I spent on the trailer ultimately was, worth it just because it was like fun to have people see it and whatever. And if, and if you go to the YouTube channel, one thing you also will see is a 14 second clip. I forgot this is on there of, um, I used to have really bad reflux. So you can see the live x-ray of me swallowing the liquid and then watching it shoot back up my esophagus, which is really cool. That's right. That's the, <laughs> that's the most recent video on there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had them, I had them take that because, uh, uh, I knew it would be cool. It was the second time I did it. And it was like this whole process. I actually have magnets now that act as a, as a newly installed esophageal valve. So I no longer have reflux. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Medical miracles. Yeah. <laughs> I think it just <laughs> stole your what we should be amazed about. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, man, I hate to segue away from that. Oh, the comic. Let's talk about that for a second. More okay. specifically, like working on a comic. So you said this was the ninth. Mm-hmm. And you also mentioned that you commission out the artwork uh, on them now um, after mm-hmm. that first one. How do you find the process of working on a comic and working with an artist? How does that usually go? And are there certain artists that you've that you work with 
repeatedly or do you usually find somebody different for each book or okay so when it comes to each new like title being a different character the intention was always to have different artwork for each of the mm -hmm. characters so for the grizz comics the artists that we went with and this was just sort of a coincidence that worked out really well grizz again he's a specian and so he's you know somewhere in in between man and like animal he's like i don't know saber tooth tiger or something and uh so his art style is not like sharp everything is not blurry but you can definitely tell that he's not someone whose eyes are the main way that he sees the world kind of thing which is really so it was like i ended up going with some artists who i knew could get it done quickly and it just happened to work out that their art style sort of perfectly matched him as a character so the, every Grizz comic, I was going to use them. And it was these two very nice gentlemen out in Poland, Lucas and Camille. They have a whole studio and they're literally machines. I gave them, you know, I gave them four issues and they got all four issues completely done in like two or three months. It was insane. They were doing like wow. legitimately, yeah, they were doing five pages a week. It was crazy. And um, so then when, when it was time to get Chris sort of off the ground, I just kind of, I did the, I did the, um, you know, I put out like a request for proposal pretty much for, for, the, for the, what I'm doing. I just put it out all over again and, you know, had a whole new stable of people who were ready to go. And, and so, yeah, every, every comic is going to have, if it has a different main character, it'll have a different artist for sure. Is mm -hmm. it difficult, do you think, to find people that can visually represent what it is you are saying in words? You know what I mean? I don't know if I'm, if I'm, if I'm saying that correctly, but you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. And the answer is somewhere in between yes and no. And, and I'll tell you why, obviously. Um, so when you give someone a script for a comic book, I have discovered it's not unlike giving them a script for a screenplay. And the role that I take on as the person doing, you know, everything except for making the art happen, the role that I take on is director and producer, pretty much. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm writing the script, well, I guess I'm also like the screenwriter or whatever. I don't know. Anyway. When, 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 you're, when you're looking for someone whose artwork is going to match the vision, there's, there's things to take into consideration beyond just the way that their art looks in their portfolio, right? You, you, you really should go with somebody who already has sequential art, right. who's already done the style of comic that you're looking to do. Um, that's all really easy stuff. And so the hard part comes in kind of with what you're really digging into, which is when they actually have the script in their hands and they send you these penciled pages, is it hard to find someone who can read what you wrote and produce something that you think is going to actually portray what you were trying to go for? Mm -hmm. So here's what we do now. And I say we because my wife is super involved in the process also, which makes everything even better, right? Mm -hmm. um, here's what we do now is for every new project, no matter what, we do a round of test pages. Everyone gets paid for them, right? No one draws anything for free. I'll do it at whatever rate that they have to take. I don't care. But, you know, we pick the top kind of four or five people who show interest and say that they're available for the predicted timeline and for the total budget and all that stuff. And I give them the first two or three pages, you know, like, here, please draw these. They get paid for them. And then literally, we just look at those first two or three pages and we say, okay, based on what I wrote, that how does it look? And so we do that whole process. And it's just become like really, really important Especially from, especially from the standpoint of getting the comic finished. And so mm -hmm. we learned this really late in the game. What happened with Chris was, you know, Ray Larson came in, she drew, she drew and lettered and did everything. She did 
everything in the comic. And then we got a finished product and the colors just weren't really right. And the onus falls 100% on me, right? I had, an, I had plenty of opportunity to tell her, hey, I don't really like the way this is colored, but I was in the middle of approving artwork when I was doing the release for the new novel that came out last October. Mm. So I was really only focused on that, totally my fault. And so sometime in January or February, when I thought I was still going to be getting ready for the big convention here in town, which was last month, but didn't happen because of Corona, you know, I'm, I'm freaking out, right? Because it just doesn't look, I'm just like, I, I can't, I can't do this, you know? And so what I ended up doing was kind of tapping into some resources that I have because I've been in it for a minute and know people. And what I did was a whole second round of test pages uh, just for colorists. And mm-hmm. I'm not even lying. I mean, just beyond, beyond the difference between, you know, the great stuff that Ray gave us and what we got from Edgar Tavides, uh, the difference between Edgar and even just the other colorists is just so immense. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And any of those colorists who are literally just people who really only do colors, right. any of them would have given us an amazing book. But if I hadn't done this process of having people color the first couple pages, I mean, like... The difference between Edgar and everyone else is that everyone else gave us a really nice looking book and Edgar literally makes the tattoos magical. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. I don't know. I don't know how he did it, but even just that first or second, the second page or whatever, where you see the butterfly on the guy. I mean, that looks like a real magical butterfly tattoo. Mm-hmm. It just, he, the guy blows you away. And so that, that really is what it comes down to is not just having the budget overall for the comic if you're going to commission it, but having the budget beyond that to have people do test pages for you. Right, yeah. right. It's like a paid audition. That's a really smart move. I mean, Yeah, it really, it really is. And um, it's just so important. Man, it's, it's crazy how important it is. And so what we're going to start doing with every new one-shot that comes out is, you know, I, because, because I'm just one guy and I have a day job and comics cost a lot of money, I've had to go with people who can sort of jack of all trades it and do everything. And what you end up with is very real uh, justified criticism of smaller aspects of these comics that in the comic book world are really big deals. Like people get really uh, passionate, I'll say, about lettering, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Not, yep. Not, all, not all lettering is equal. And when you go with someone who isn't a professional letterist, letterist, letterer, I don't know. Letterer, when you go with yeah. Someone, letterer, yeah. When you go with someone whose primary thing is not just literally drawing the words, you end up with font and there's people who have a legitimate issue with font and it's totally justified. And so now in the future with these one shots, I mean, the budget's just going to be what it is and we're going to get people who, you know, they get one job and their one job is probably right. just going to be whatever they're really, really good at. And so the books are just going to get better as a result, but mm-hmm. uh, it really, it does. It ends up being really, really important, more important than you can anticipate when you're sort of cutting your teeth as you go, which is what we did. Right, right. Savannah asks, and okay, so context for this. So Savannah, for a comic book podcast, we don't talk about comics a whole lot anymore. It's been a few. It's been it's been a few months since we really dove into comics. Um, but Savannah, and Savannah does not come from the comic book uh, fandom side of our listenership. Um, but she said, "Wait, there are com- uh, colorists. This is a thing. We should really search out." a colorist and maybe an inker and a letterer sometime in the future and explore that more because yeah, it's the difference a colorist or, uh, or a letterer can make 
when a letterer also pretty oftentimes, oftentimes they have a lot to do with like um like how the speech bubbles work too you know right like where they go like how how much of the actual art gets covered up that kind of thing and it's there's a lot to consider there there, there's a lot there, and when you're doing comics there's a lot anyway it just in general they can because they can lead the eye they lead your eye right right you know through the story so so yeah there's there's several different people working on each panel usually and in, in, in like in, in like a, a dc or a marvel or something like that yeah like a larger budget right comic. so yes to answer your question spana you go and you apply to be a colorer and you color anything you want and you'll be great. <laughs> when there's oh, actually like flat think, colors and then there's actually like yes. rendered colors too. Yes. Like doesn't somebody somebody even do shading on like separately? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, it's crazy. It gets crazy up in here. We have a we have a guy, uh, Vic Moya, who is local in Las Vegas, and his line work is uh, it's it's got to be top five in probably the, you know this region of the country. Like he's so good. And just the, his ability to, um, I don't know, make the lines beautiful uh, as, as an inker or, or whatever the term is, excuse me. Um, it, takes, it takes a comic 100% to the next level. It's insane. It's, re- it's crazy. It's crazy. Matt, Matt D says, what? You don't talk about comics? We talk about comics. It's just that we have to like read them all first. And we've been busy. <laughs> right, right. We used to... You know, that's why that's why we stuck with the live streams because I, I I don't want to do that the regular Grolix podcast show that's still very comics focused we just haven't done one of those episodes in a while yeah <laughs> right okay well the other thing is do you want to talk a little bit about how'd you get into writing what kind of uh brought you to that okay so you know I'm a little kid and um just was <laughs> just gravitated towards writing in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, as when I was young and always had it, you know, somewhere in the background as like a hobby or like a passion kind of thing, the way that people sit there and draw, I would sit there and write that kind of stuff. I got real serious, like real serious about it when I was somewhere around 19. And, you know, um, when you like the internet really just exploded somewhere around, I don't know, 2004, 2005, I just think that there was like a real hard expansion. And so sometime after that, I was 19. And, uh, you know, when you start to look into these subcultures that you want to ingratiate yourself into and, and you know, get used to the terms that people use and, and the cyclical things that exist within them, one of them for authors is NaNoWriMo, which is National Novel Writing Month. And it gives you a very real, tangible way to sit down every single day, write X amount of words, and get to 50,000 to make a novel. So somewhere around 19, I was introduced to this concept and, you know, didn't like being in college. I I hate going to school and didn't like the jobs I was working and just needed some kind of outlet for, like, all these negative things I was feeling, I guess. And so jumped into NaNoWriMo, wrote this, like, really terrible book and um, something happens for, for people. And you know who has a really great quote about it, I think, is Ira Glass, where, he's, where he talks about how when you're a purveyor of good art and you sit down to make something that is good art, you'll look at it, especially in the beginning, and you'll realize it's not even close to the stuff that you enjoy. But that's okay, 
because it takes time to build up those skills, right? Mm -hmm. So that really happened to me where I wrote this book when I was 19 and I looked at it and I said, this thing is terrible. And so I knew I had to figure out a way to accelerate the process of getting better as an author. And so what I thought to do was go to shorter works, right? It, it's just easier to have a concise, um, well-put-together story when there's less overall scenes, first of all, so there's less to do and write about. And then also, too, I think the short story format or the novella format is very forgiving when it comes to endings. When you have a novel, you need at least one of the threads to be put together. But for almost any good short story, it doesn't really have to have an ending. Like that's, that's not like a hard and fast rule for short stories. I apologize for the dogs barking in the background. No worries. So, okay. So wrote a novel, really bad, switch to short stories. Still not great, but I was able to do them much, much, much faster. And then eh, somewhere in between 19 and 21, I stumbled on a writing group that was tied directly into the online videos that Brandon Sanderson, I think, still puts out or used to put out. He used to have like an online writing workshop that you could just follow along to the videos and get together with whoever you wanted to separately. And it was like, you followed the videos, you wrote stuff, you shared it with each other, and then you critiqued each other, right? Mm -hmm. So when I joined that writing group, I had been toying around with an idea, which was like the founding idea of the chosen universe, just having a gene that destined you for greatness kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of planned out like a loose storyline about some 20 something piece of delivery driver. And I was in this writing group. And so weekly, we shared a thousand words with each other. So something happened to the writing group. Um, the first the first thing, I guess it, two things happened. The first thing was I got really great feedback from complete strangers, which was like really emboldening, right? Because I had been sort of toiling away privately and not really sharing any work with anybody. And then complete strangers were like reading my stuff and, and giving me all kinds of compliments, which was really cool. At the same time, I was sharing the writing with uh, one particular friend of mine. And this one guy, which was not you know four or five people, was giving me almost exactly the same in terms of quality and literally the things he was pointing out, the, the same feedback as these people in this writing group. So I bowed out of the writing group because I wanted to finish the story much faster than we were going to finish it in the writing group and only shared it with a buddy of mine who was like one of the original founding test readers of the chosen universe and you know got really great feedback from him on episode one. And so that's, that's how it got finished so quickly and also how we got into this self-publishing thing. And in 2013, self-publishing on Amazon was so new. I mean, it was like new, 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 new. And so it was like kind of this new hotness vibe. And it was like really cool. And it was very easy to do something that not a lot of people were doing and get a lot of attention. So episode one from the very beginning was getting thousands of downloads a month, which was amazing. And it was even more amazing because at the time there was no superhero category on Kindle. That didn't happen until like way later. So that's kind of how we got into it. Was I, was I was being real serious about writing and actively trying to get better and didn't have any kind of real structure for the output. So the writing group gave me this structure for the output that turned into just this self-publishing process. And then for the first five, it was like every nine weeks, I was releasing another one, mm -hmm. um, which sort of helped build the platform and stuff like that. And then after that episode five, I took a step back and I said, okay, we're doing something here. So um, at somewhere around, somewhere around, um, yeah, somewhere around then, when I was getting ready to sort of jump to a new anthology, which became the Origins anthology, I, I decided to go a little bit longer format. And so all the origin stories are almost double the length of the first five novellas. And then 
Um, in between the, that anthology and the Factions anthology, I did a bunch of other stuff. Like I was catching work freelance and ghost wrote a few novels and stuff like that. And um, after doing that, I realized, okay, you know, I've, I've sort of leveled up enough as an author in general that I think I want to start tackling novel novels again. And so that was in the middle of, you know, releasing comic books and doing all that kind of stuff. And once I finished writing all the other stuff that wasn't just chosen, I decided to actually take a dip back into writing novels. And so that's how we got to the release that came out last October, which was somewhere around two and a half years in the making, but would have come out way sooner if we hadn't run into the end of the five-year plan. And the five-year plan was always to build a platform to then write a novel to then get traditionally published because people were already reading me. And... I go to, I sometimes, not every year, go to the only real writing conference that we have here in Las Vegas, which is hosted by the Henderson Writers Group, which is really great. And it's really great because outside of just workshops that help you get better as an author, you actually get to schedule pitch sessions with the faculty that they bring in. And the majority of the faculty are literary agents. So after the first year, the second year I went there, after I had, you know, the first year I went, I pitched this novel to these agents, right? I pitched it to like four people. And two of them requested the manuscript, which is amazing. So I give these two people the manuscript. One of them is like, you know what? I read this. It's nice. I see you online. You're doing okay. I don't know what I can do for you. I'm sorry. And I was like, okay, cool. The second guy read it. He's like, you know what? This is nice. I dug it. It's not really for me. Here's some notes. So I took like nine months to incorporate all of these notes he gave me because he read like the whole thing and he gave me crazy notes. It was a lot. So the book got better, right? I went back the next year. And in between that year and the next year, my online presence and the total number of sales and downloads, it like tripled. It was crazy. It was a crazy year in between. We went from like 25,000 total downloads to well over 60,000. It was nuts. Wow. And it was, yeah, it was, it was because I had also been putting out more stuff, right? So mm -hmm. I don't know, you know, you get that feedback loop where like one person finds episode one, then they want to read everything kind of thing. And mm -hmm. So the second year that I came back, I had this little like folder, like little binder that I took with me. And it was like a little, um, it was like, you know, I was doing like a real pitch, like, hey, I'm Will, this is chosen. And I would flip the page and I'd say, here's my total downloads across all my stuff. And I'd flip the page and I'd say, here's all the total reviews across all my stuff. And you can see that people who leave one review, they usually leave another review kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then I'd flip and I'd say, let's talk about my new book. And I'm not even joking. I went from one year, four agents, two of them request a manuscript to the next year for agents again. And every single one of them said the same thing to me. They said, you're doing really well. Why would you want to work with a publisher? Yeah. Yeah. Looking back on it now, that's like an amazing thing to hear, but it, yeah. I mean, like, I'm not even joking. I had spent legitimately five years working towards these conversations. <laughs> right. And, and they're just like, well, keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's like you are a AAA baseball player who also makes YouTube videos and you're like, hey, you should bring me to the major leagues. And they're like, oh, but you're doing so good on YouTube. Like, why don't you just keep catching fly balls on YouTube? And you're like, the dream, <laughs> right. was, to play, the dream was to play major right. league baseball. Like the right. dream forever was to be traditionally published. And, like, and it's, it was like so hard to, to convey that to these people that who are yeah. legitimately like, no, dude, you don't want to work with a publisher. You're doing great. So, you know, and it's, it's crazy too. Cause I'd be like, but I want to be, I, I like, I want to be in grocery stores and they're like, so yeah. print books and go sell in the grocery stores. I'm like, I want to be in libraries and work with real editors. And they're like, you can call a real editor on the phone. Like it doesn't matter. <laughs> so that was like, 
that really took the wind out of my sails. Right, right. And uh, and I spent probably five months where I just didn't, I just didn't do anything. And um, my wife, who was just my girlfriend at the time, you know, she sp- she put a lot of uh, question, or she put a lot of energy into really, you know, like pumping me back up, kind of thing, and being like, hey this doesn't have to be a bad thing. Like they're telling you it's a good thing. And so we did a little bit of, uh, inside counseling and, um, you know, I had to get the passion back a little bit. And, uh, so that's, that's really what happened there. Um, I don't know why we got on that tangent. I, <laughs> that's okay. I, I talked too long. That's okay. I, Matt has a question, Matt D he says, uh, when you sit down to write, do you, do you decide, Hey, I'm going to write a comic and fit the story to meet the format. Or do you write a story and let the story decide the format? So, um, I don't, I don't like when other people give this answer, but I'm going to do it here. And the answer I'm going to give you is the characters sort of decide for me when it comes to what we're doing. The reason I say that is because in giving readers Easter eggs to find and in telling meta stories on top of the stories that we're telling, anytime I want to tell another aspect of whatever larger thing we're, we're talking about, you know, like one of the one of the main superheroes is a spy for the genetic extremists. No one's figured it out. All the clues are there. It's whatever. But if I if I sit down and I say, okay, the next one really has to give people a very in your face, hey, this is this guy and he's a spy, right? Then I would say, then I would think about the, you know, I would think about the way that I wanted to do that. And at the end of the day, if I if whatever I came up with I thought was gonna work better as a comic, then yeah, that's what we would do. When I I kind of touched on this earlier on the podcast, but when I decided I was going to give Chris a comic, it was because I knew I wanted to really dive into her as a character because she was like so fun and she was not a main character yet in anything. But I knew, okay, if I'm going to dive into a main character whose whose thing is magical tattoos, it had to be a visual format because, and this is kind of fun, in all the pros that she's in up until this point, anytime that she uses a tattoo, I never describe what the tattoo is. And I did it on, I did it on purpose because I knew that she was probably always going to get a comic. And I honestly didn't want to lock myself into any, any single design until we were going to draw it and it was going to look cool. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't want to say like, oh yeah, she's got like a whatever, a flame tattoo on her wrist or something like that. Um, I just didn't want to do that. Dogs are barking again. Sorry. It's okay. I, I had a question. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Amazon is a, an interesting place to me and, and the Kindle thing because... Yeah, fans on there, from what I understand, I don't know, but uh, are crazy and they're like insatiable and they're they're always want more, like more and more and more. Do you find that that some that they push that pushes you to to do more and to do more in the same universe rather than like branching out and doing your own thing or working on you know something else that you would rather that that the people mm-hmm. they're wanting so much makes you focus on that more. That's a really, really great question. It's super insightful. Um, so here's the thing. I don't write to market. And uh, that's a term that anyone listening might not be familiar with. But essentially, you know, the, the right to market concept, you can see it most commonly with young adult books. And so when you get any one of these new young adult books that, that is hot on the scene, they follow this very formulaic, you know, uh, she's a, you know, she is an empty shell of a person who you can insert yourself into and she's going to fall in love with whatever kind of character and they're going to do stuff and whatever, right? doesn't matter. They, they're formulaic. And so this concept of writing to market exists across all genres, basically. I've never done it because I 
don't really know how to do it and also have a good time. Mm-hmm. And so I just end up telling these stories that I want to tell that I think are cool, which mm-hmm. is advice I got from Neil Gaiman, not personally, but that he says. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is, what happens is this. Throughout the entirety of the Chosen Universe's tenure, you get, you get 10 people who download episode one or any of the other works. And out of those 10, you get maybe four that like it. The great thing is the four that like it, who, you know, they see that they see what I'm going for and they enjoy it for whatever it is. Generally, they want to read everything. Generally, if someone likes it, they're like, I need more, which is exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, which is really great. But I think this is this is, you know, my hypothesis here. I think because I don't write to market and I'm in a small niche and I catch an even smaller portion of the niche's readership. Mm-hmm. I don't really run into the kind of broad sort of insatiable readers that you would run into if you were to write in again, like young adult and write to market young adult books. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's a positive and a negative. It's a, it's a negative because I mean, my readership is comparatively very small to someone who can, you know, churn out 70,000 word books, you know, every couple of weeks. Right. Um, but it's a positive because I feel like I get more thoughtful people who are into the series. Not to say that um, other authors don't, but I just don't run into like that pressure that other people feel when they're trying to make writing and self-publishing their only job, mm-hmm. which is like really, really hot the last couple of years. Um, you know, I get to take my time. No one complains about it. I have a solid readership. When something new comes out, they definitely want to read it. I can't really ask for more than that. It's just a passion project at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I, I, I hope that answers the question you were asking. Um, yeah. I, don't, I don't really catch that pressure at all. And it's because I don't write to market. Like I don't, I don't, I catch such a small portion of this massive, you know, online presence that I don't think the kinds of people who would even think to put that pressure on somebody or like leave those kinds of reviews. I don't even think that they're interested in what I'm doing. Cause it, I don't know. They're just, they're just not. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Was there anything we didn't talk about that you definitely want to talk about? Basically, I'm wrapping up like the interview section, which has been great, by the way. Thank you. Oh, maybe maybe a speed round question type of thing, or, or like a list question, um, because I know, you, like you you uh, you pointed out the the Popeye spinach can. You, um, there's like a Spider Man reference, kind of a loose Spider Man reference. Um, you, you mentioned Neil Gaiman. Like, give us a list of some of your. Um, Maybe some of your favorite pop culture things. Oh, um, can we do, can we do like Easter eggs instead? Just Easter yeah, eggs. Yeah, okay. even okay. better. Okay. Yeah, okay. let's go. Okay. 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 <laughs> okay. All right. There's a lot of them. There's a couple that I really, really enjoy personally that I think don't resonate with people, probably because they don't realize it's an Easter egg in the first place, but also because to other people, it's just not that funny. So, okay, here's a really good one. And uh, this is something that occurs in the Megatech novella and also in the Grizz comics, okay? Um, it is a gun that can shoot anything. And, and I know it's easy to say, oh, well, all guns can shoot anything. No, no, no. The projectiles that come out of this gun can be anything. Like, you pull the trigger and the gun somehow shoots whatever you need. Mm-hmm. Completely overpowered only shows up like ridiculously rarely. And um, 
when I introduced it in the Megatech novella, I, I, I like needed a, a deus ex machina kind of thing. <laughs> oh <laughs> like, man, that's great. It, yeah, was, awesome. it was like, it was like really weird that I did that because I, because, um, she as a, like she as, as a fully real, man, these dogs are going nuts again. She as a fully realized character is the deus ex machina. She is that. But because I was doing her origin story, I put her in this fight scene, you guys. And I just like, I was like, Oh my God, she's not good. She can't make it. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is her origin story and she's going like, to die I was like, I was like, I'm, like, she, I'm like she wouldn't get out of this and um, so what I did and this actually is a pop culture reference in its own way what I did was uh, the she um, she has like a, a supervillain apprenticeship that she's in that's her story and this guy has a bunch of weapons on his wall and she kind of just takes the one that like for whatever reason she thinks is cool and it was like a throwback to the cricket gun from Men in Black yeah, <laughs> where it's, like, where it's like not a big gun, and but then she pulls the trigger and just like crazy stuff comes out of it, um, and so uh, and so it it became like a meta Easter egg in the comics because in the Grizz comics they go and they explore this thing that happens all the time in the Chosen Universe in different works, which is like this underground um, Chosen blood sport uh, that gets broadcast on private television, and um, so the main character and his team are infiltrating this blood sport and uh there's like a there's like a bazaar bit like leading into the the arena for the competitors where like vendors are there selling their wares kind of thing and there's this guy and he like shows this gun and he's like hey you want to buy this gun like it, it can shoot anything and the character he says it to is a tinkerer like he makes stuff and so he's like no nah, man i got i got all my guns i'm good but <laughs> but then you as the reader if you had read megatech and you saw that you'd be like oh bro you should have got that gun <laughs> it's like aladdin's lamp in, yeah. in the form of a gun so that's my favorite that's my favorite little easter egg um there's a lot of them that surround the guy who is a spy and the favorite one of mine for that is in it's in jane right had to think and it's in jane yeah it's in jane i'm pretty sure she walks into a nightclub and um there's a bunch of people on the dance floor and none of them have faces and they're all like different colors and they just look like one like shifting they look like one shifting like sea of bodies kind of thing and they're just like it's like it's like a rave turned up to 11 where everyone is the glow stick right and um that is that character who is in other stuff and he's the only character whose gene and the power that it gives him makes sense to be able to do that right and so it's like it's like the most offbeat, random application of his of his specific power. And it's just like, if you don't really pay attention to him as a character and what he can do, you're never going to put that together. And as the author, it makes me so happy that I did that. I'm just like, man, no one is ever going to get this. <laughs> it's like so weird. But I do, and that's awesome. Yeah. It's like, and so that's what I'm saying. Like, that's only good for me. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, that kind of goes to what you're saying about you don't write to market, you write what you want to write and what you <laughs> yeah. think is cool. Yeah. Yeah. I can't even talk about it without like laughing. It's just like, sense. it's just so out there. <laughs> yeah. So, um, what do you have? I, I know you just came out with this comic last week. Um, what do you have coming up? Yeah. Anything exciting coming up for you? It's a really good question. Yes. Um, and I really appreciate you asking it because I <laughs> needed to talk about this. So, th uh, three things. The first one we already talked about new kids book. It's coming out. I don't know. Maybe like September. I'm not sure. Uh, it's ready to go. 
And what I'd like to do is probably write half the next one before that one comes out, which is um, not, not going to be a problem. The second thing I'm working on is the second full-length novel. Second full-length novel, just to give everyone a preview, follows a main character whose story picks up. And this is the first time we're going real sequential here. Like, you'll want to read the novels in order. It picks up literally in the last scene of the first novel. And it follows a character who uses that scene to escape from his indentured servitude. Um, and he is someone who, previous to that specific scene happening and his book starting, uh, was a performer in the Midnight Circus. Yeah. Spoiler, is, guys, if you follow. <laughs> yeah, which is... Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Um, yeah, the Midnight Circus is a thing that exists in the Chosen Universe. It's super evil. Everyone is basically an indentured servant who is a performer or works for the circus in almost any way. Um, and I like that concept so much that um, we're also doing, and I say we very specifically this, this time because this is a project that is heavily involving my wife. Um, I'm also going to make the jump to Webtoon. And what we're going to do, yeah, what we're going to do is sort of like a, our own version of Tales from the Crypt where we do Tales from the Midnight Circus. And so what you'll get are little, not little, but, you know, maybe like four or five episode, like, um, I don't even know, like, how many panels are an episode? Like 25 or something. So it's like 100, 125 panel stories of different characters from the Midnight Circus specifically, where we get someone like a Crypt Keeper, um, who is really like the right-hand man, not the Ringmaster specifically, but he's like the right-hand man of the Ringmaster, who... Bring, brings us into each story is sort of kind of the primary narrator kind of thing. Um, and is also going to get to tell his own meta story across like this first season. So what we have now for that is basically the first, first characters storyline. It's going to follow, um, this pair of bird people. They're the high flyers in the circus. And, um, yeah. So writing for webtoon for some reason, is way harder than writing regular comics, and uh, and my wife is a is a webtoon like fanatic. She reads so much stuff, and when it comes to having like your finger on the pulse of a, of an entire platform, she is that person. So she's like the primary editor on this webtoon draft that we're working on. And I mean, like all her notes are really good, but this is like the longest I've ever spent having to edit a script before we even go to having someone draw test panels. So it's going to be a minute. We probably won't. We probably won't even get, you know, people giving us test panels until the new year. And so it's a project that I'm anticipating. You know, as long as we don't get hit with like some crazy bill, um, it's a project I'm anticipating gets off the ground in 2021 at some point. But when it does, the plan is to have enough stuff in the can because weekly releases are so important on Webtoon. We're going to have enough stuff in the can that we've got maybe like five weeks of content. And then beyond that, you know, we'll be able to kind of get a regular release schedule, at least for like the first season or whatever, and then um, be able to go from there. So those three things are really what the primary focus is right now. Um, without diving too far into it, because I don't know how long we should pull the conversation out for, but I'm just, I'm, I'm very interested. What aspect of, of writing the webtoon do you find more difficult? Is it the pacing? Because it's definitely a different kind of structure and pacing you have i'm guessing less space to work with and the breaks are in different spots is that kind of it that's really honestly that's the heart of it is right yeah. is the it's the format and the format locks you in to telling the story in the 
in the way the format can tell the story. Right. Web, webtoon to webtoon, the format's not exactly the same. You know, for the longer form stuff where you're reading it top to bottom, it's not all exactly the same. Like we all know that. It's you know, each webtoon is basically one giant splash page, right? You can think of it like that. Even if you have separate panels, the panels routinely bleed into each other. So here's what happens: is you've got to write it to the format, and then someone like my wife has to read it and say, well, you know what? This doesn't work because um, just because of like the way that people who read successful webtoons like are going to receive it. We're not, again, we're not writing this to market, but we are going to make sure that it has the ability to be successful from all of the major sort of brushstrokes to making a webtoon in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And you're, and you're real authentic yeah. for the people who use it. Right, right exactly. Right. Exactly. Like we're like, we're not skimping on anything. There's not going to be anybody who's like, oh, I hate the lettering in this. You know what I mean? We're like, and that's just like the equivalent to like the normal style of comics. All of that stuff as it translates into Webtoon, we're hitting all of that. And um, yeah, I'm really excited about it. It's going to be super fun. Like once we really get the ball rolling and especially as I kind of adapt to writing for the format, that'll help us be able to make stuff more quickly. And so I'm, I'm just, I'm stoked. Like Webtoon is so hot right now. We probably should have jumped on it a long time ago, but we didn't. And um, I just think that there's like a total untapped aspect of the reader sort of marketplace that I think can really help people gravitate towards chosen as a brand. Mm. Yeah. All right. Um, okay. So, oh, again, um, real quick, where can people, uh, if they want to find your work, where are the best places to do so? So if you want to just read stuff right now, go to Amazon. You can type in my name. You can type in literally just the letters CH05EN, and my stuff's going to come up. Um, if you want to find me as a person, you can go to... Ba, 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 you can go... Sorry, I was reading Matthew Downs' comment. Yeah, mm-hmm. there we go. <laughs> if you want to connect with me in any meaningful way, which is totally possible, you can hit me up on Facebook. Um, my Facebook is super easy to find. You can find me on Instagram. It's at... CH05EN underscore Will, which is, I think, what I made my name on the show. So people would be able to do that more easily. Oh, right. Yeah. You know what? I should uh, hold on. Let me turn those on somehow. <laughs> yeah, I can see it on my screen. I don't know. So um, so those are really the three places that you can find me super easily, super fast. You know, the, the door is always open. I will tell you that. Uh, this is something that I, as a reader, like to do and have always really done since I was like a teenager is you know, you, you find the contact info of an author whose work you really enjoy and you send them an email. I've done it forever. I've exchanged emails with anybody that I really, really like Christopher Golden Anne rice. Um, I mean like literally at anybody that I, whose books I really enjoy for any reason, I've written them an email. And the cool thing about authors is a lot of the time they get back to you. So I've been fortunate enough that when someone gets a hold of my email, if they feel like writing me an email, like this has happened. I've had kids send me emails about stuff. Um, and so that's something that like I always look forward to and is you know just like such a treat because I'm not huge um, when it happens. But I mean, like honestly, anybody that comes across anything that has any way to contact me, like if you want to have a conversation about literally anything, I will talk with you. So awesome. Yeah. Um, do you regret? C-H-O-5-E-N at all in terms of a title. Okay. I feel like you're asking because I feel like the question really is, do you regret? Okay. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I, yeah, I should. Okay. I I did phrase it weird. 
the title it like it's a good title uh do you regret it from a searchability or or marketing standpoint from a searchability standpoint no it was incredibly easy from the very beginning to lock down that keyword on literally every search engine that you can imagine that was always the intention was to was to find a way to get a brand that was going to be findable in the first place so here's what happened though was uh it's easy to misspell Okay. Right. Not everyone realizes it's a zero. It um, is easy to run into the seven thing. You know, the meme about that movie seven where it's like se- se- seven, seven. Mm-hmm. So, so from the very beginning, I've gotten, oh, what's Cho Fiven? And it's like, you know, it's not that. You know, that's <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, know? you live on the you internet. Of, Come on. Yeah. Elite yeah. speak yeah. is a thing. Exactly. Like, do I, fe- do I feel like I shouldn't have given it elite speak title? No, I don't. And it's, and it's only because it's so easy to find me and there's no one else doing it. There's like one other guy who used to come up on the search results and he was some random Twitter handle who like played Madden <clears throat> and he doesn't come up anymore. His Twitter handle is like not active. So I don't regret it only because it's so easy to find. Um, I, I've gotten used to whatever kind of silly comments you get. It's kind of neat that it ended up being lead speak. But honestly, it also does tie back into what we're doing from a foundational aspect of the universe itself. It's the, it's the CH zero five EN gene. Yeah. That's what which it is, is good, which is good. Yeah. That's good. I like that. And, and so what that follows, it, it, yeah. follows mm-hmm. it follows real world gene nomenclature, like real world genes are two letters, two numbers, two letters. There's no gene that is CH zero five EN like that doesn't exist, but there's like, there's like, you know, H E O four X Y like that's a gene or whatever, you know, like, there's stuff that isn't words that are genes. And so I just took like the nomenclature and I made a word. That's what I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's good. It's it's one of those things where like doing as much like on like dealing with with like branding and online you know, websites and just just online anything and try, or, you know, and podcasting. I also run um, our podcast network and just knowing like trying to tell people like you go here or search for this or this is what this is. Anytime I see something like that, I just like, I get a little shudder where I'm like, I would hate to have to try to like explain it every time, but, but on I mean, the show named after an obscure comic on, yeah, on Grolix podcast, nobody knows what a Grolix is <laughs> or how it would be spelled. Like, yeah. So right. like I, yeah, it's one of those things where that was my first thought. I was like, Oh God, uh, like I shuddered just like, Nope, I, I wouldn't want to have to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Not an insult on the title, and no, I do. Sure. I'm not I do definitely appreciate the uh, the gene the gene naming uh, scheme is is that's pretty good. I've been really lucky that you know I was intentional in that regard, and so it's very easy to just kind of explain that to somebody, and then they go, "Oh, okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense." Like it's it's very easy to get that reaction, so I really kind of just don't ever worry about it. Um, but it's it's not been without its. Uh, literal hardships that are exactly what you're describing pretty much yeah yeah <laughs> no everybody's probably like what are you guys even talking about shut up yeah that is the type of thing <laughs> that is the exact that's the type of thing like that yeah i i definitely get fixated on that stuff um well i think and you guys can disagree with me if you want there were a couple interesting news stories but i think we should just wrap the episode i think yeah. this is a solid episode yeah yeah um thank you william for joining us uh it's been super interesting thank you i always like having guests and it's always it's always interesting to find out people's processes and things you know what i mean i always right. enjoy it. 
<sighs> and you were very patient while I neglected my emails. I'm I'm not I'm notorious about that. <laughs> oh there, yeah. Oh yeah. That's not there's probably like two. I mean, they're not following us. If they were though, there's at least two other people like how'd he get on? They've been neglected <laughs> my email for three months. <laughs> I mean, you know, you got you. You have to follow up with people. That's just the Pers- world. That persistence pays. Yeah, that's, that's I'm like I don't, I'm not even like offended. You know what I mean? I just I just like awesome. you said a little reminder. I put you, I put you on a sticky note. I look at the date that I sent it to you. It's been ten days. I'm like, hey, what's going on? You know? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, it's good. Okay. Oh, I'm trying to improve. I'm trying to get better on that. That's I believe right. in you. Yeah, you can do it. <laughs> yeah. I, that gives me strength. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, Yeah, this has been great. Uh, Anybody else have anything? Anybody else have anything coming up? Jesse, you got anything coming up you need to tell people about? Um, I mean, sort of a a soft, sort of a soft pitch, I suppose. Uh, I just created a pile of stuff that's going to fall. I wrote, I wrote this book like a ton, like maybe five years ago. Mm-hmm. I finally, because this coronavirus thing hit and I, I need to give myself, you know, something to do. Uh, I am, re- I'm almost done with the follow-up book five years later. Uh, and, but I'm kind of excited about it because uh, these were all uh, things that I did, you know, quite a while, quite a while ago. And uh, this will be my opportunity to kind of, um, publish the rest of it. So anything that was unpublished, um, I'm getting, I'm getting it out there and, uh, I don't know when it'll be done because I want to take my time, make sure I do it right. Uh, you know, um, cross all the T's and dot all the I's, but, uh, eventually that that'll be coming up. And, and I, I put up the tank monkey book, uh, with, oh, yeah. for, for the audio listener that has no idea what I just did. Um, my, my original book, uh, no monkey business, uh, was about my web comic, uh, for tank monkey who is literally just a tank driving monkey and uh this first volume basically collected all of the stories that would have been literally stories uh because he was originally just like a comic strip character he wasn't even supposed to be a comic strip he was just a doodle that that kind of grew into his own character and so the new book will be all those things and they're super one-off and super quirky things um the the title of of the book will be ratopotamus unleashed and ratopotamus is just one of those bizarre one-off characters that uh basically gets one or two strips and uh then we move on to squirrel yeti and every other bizarre thing that enters my brain ratopotamus you only ever got one or two strips he only got two, two technically. Yeah. And actually the second one isn't even really his. It's um party spider. That's a character. <laughs> that's a char- Somehow that is a character that went off, went on and had a life of his own because he's one of your characters that's burned in my memory. Um, <laughs> yeah. He's basically, he's basically a uh, rainbow surfing hippopotamus that is so summoned rad. the same way that Beetlejuice is summoned. You just say rad too many times and there he is. <laughs> shows up like the kool-aid man it's crazy hi melanie no nothing were you gonna say something <clears throat> okay well i was just gonna say i have no books to sell oh. i have no books. Well, i don't yet either <laughs> but someday <laughs> well I, I will have a compilation album for the electronic oh, musicians right. group which is a defunct group but we've put it together a compilation album it's just waiting on me to release it um i'll have that but that's not ready yet so <laughs> nothing's ready yet. It'll all be ready soon. Melanie. Uh, uh-huh. Do, is there anything we should be amazed about? There's always something you should be amazed about. 
they discovered a new particle in the Large Hadron Collider this past week. What's it doing? What is it? It is subatomic particle, as of yet unnamed, but it's a quark, a charmed quark. And it's brand new, and they are like, this thing's crazy, and it, it does all kinds of weird stuff. We don't know. So look it up, and you'll find out. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, William's like, what is going on? This is how we end the show. We just... yeah. I like it. I was just going to say, I saw a meme recently that was like, time travel is real, and that's why 2020 is going so terrible. Like, people keep going back in time to try and fix whatever the yes. crazy problem was, and so that's why we're getting all this other stuff. And that's why, like, that's why murder hornets disappeared or whatever. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Discovering a new particle really makes me think that that might be dead on. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a butterfly effect that won't yeah. quit. <laughs> yeah. That reminds me, Melanie finished this Netflix series Dark last night, and she had to call me and and tell me all about every depressing detail it was so depressing <laughs> time was... travel and yeah very timey-wimey and it made me cry <laughs> oh. all right well let's go ahead and end this show so everybody thanks for watching uh everybody on facebook and twitch uh later and william just so you know later we'll have a replay of this up on our youtube channel as well and then monday hey wow we actually a twitch comment what's going on we are ending the show but thanks for tuning in how are you doing <laughs> <laughs> uh the rare twitch comment and then monday this will be out as a audio podcast so for all the future podcast listeners thanks for listening and thanks again william for joining us it's been thank awesome yeah thank you for having me i really appreciate it thank you for listening to grolix nights our special weekly live grolix podcast series if you've been enjoying this be sure to check out grolixpodcast.com slash live to find out where and when to listen to the next live episode Currently, Thursdays at 8 p.m. Central Time on Facebook.com slash Podcast. Thank you, froze on us. But you guys are still here. Um, so that really happened. Oh, okay. Hold on. Hey, I'm back. You're back. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay.